Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you guys want to take out your Bibles, you can have a seat. Uh, open up your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 34. And then also, if you could keep a finger in chapter 1 as well. We're going to be looking at those two parts of Job today, along with the whole book. Um, also, all of you kiddos in the room, you may come and meet Miss Joy here, and she is going to take you over to the barn building. I still don't know what that building's called yet. The barn. The barn. Okay. There you go. All right. So, and welcome all you fathers. Happy Father's Day. <sighs> okay. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. It's great to see you all. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Scott Matson. I am the new director of discipleship and missions here at Jville Prez. And uh, I get the opportunity to preach the word of God this morning. So thank you, Pastor Dustin, for giving me the book of Job in my first sermon. I appreciate that. So, <laughs> uh, Actually, I have long loved the book of Job. Uh, there are some incredible, incredible things uh, in this book. So we're going to do a flyover today. Um, but what I want to do uh, as we start the sermon this morning, I want us to look at Job 34.12, and then also chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. So um, if you guys could throw that up on the screen there, that would be wonderful. Thank you. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Brothers and sisters, as we hear every week, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. God, as we look at the scriptures, Lord, would you be pleased by your Holy Spirit to glorify yourself, to meet us where we're at, and to encourage us, your people, this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, there's a very famous story. You may have heard this one. You may not have. Uh, it's pretty simple, and for Father's Day, it's kind of fitting, at least the beginning of the story. There was a man who wanted to go on vacation. Right? Amen. Yes, amen. Thank you, Pastor Richard. Amen. So, the story starts off well, but uh, he, along with his wife and his four daughters, were set to go eat to Europe to enjoy the sights and the sounds of the continent of Europe. Well, at the last minute, unfortunately, uh, the husband, the father, was detained. Um, he was not able to go. He was detained by business. Um, so he sent his wife and his four girls ahead of him to Europe. Now, on the way, and this is where the story takes a very tragic turn, there was an accident, and all four of his daughters perished. The wife nearly lost her life, but she pulled through. Now, this story is a famous one, used in many sermon illustrations over the years, and here's the reason why. Number one, it's a true story. This took place in the year 1883. And number two, the name of the man 
was Horatio Spafford. Some of you are naughty and you know who I'm talking about. Some of you don't. If you've never heard of him, it's very likely that you've sung the hymn that he wrote in response to the tragedy. And that famous hymn is entitled, It Is Well With My Soul. So Horatio Spafford's wife, Anne, and their four daughters set sail in 1883 for Europe. Their ship was struck in the Atlantic Ocean. It sank. All four of his daughters drowned. And his wife, Anne, barely pulled through. She was found floating on like a barge of wood, unconscious. Somehow pulled through. And in response to this horrible circumstance, Horatio Spafford wrote that hymn, expressing his trust in God in the midst of unspeakable tragedy. Now, the book that we're looking at this morning, the book of Job, if you've read this book, if you've studied this book at all, you know the theme is similar. It deals with a man who, in the midst of grief that is inexpressible, still trusted in God. Not perfectly. We're going to see that. His trust in God was not absolutely perfect, but he did hold on to his faith in God in spite of the challenges. So, if you're new here this morning, uh, we are making our way through the entire Bible in a series called Whole, W-H-O-L-E. And what we're doing uh, so far is we are looking at one book of the Old Testament every week. So we have made our way through the canon of Scripture now to Job. Okay, and so what I want to do is give you just a little bit of context, and then we're going to go through the structure, and then we're going to conclude uh, with a few practical things that we can glean from this book. Uh, So first of all, the book of Job is the first book in the Bible which makes up what is called the Bible's wisdom literature. Now, the wisdom literature of Job, along with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, what it does in the scriptures is it serves to teach you and me, God's people, how we can live successfully in God's good world. It also is meant to teach us how to live in the fear of the Lord, right? That famous verse in Proverbs chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Okay, that's what the wisdom literature is meant to do, teach you and me how to live in the fear of God and how to live faithfully and successfully for God in this world. And while it doesn't seem like it on the surface, that's what the book of Job is doing in the scriptures as well. And we're going to look at that today. Now, the book of Proverbs deals with general truths about life. If you've ever read through Proverbs, right, you see things like train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he what? Won't depart from it. Yeah, many of you know that verse, right? Okay. These are truths in Proverbs, general truths about how life works when we follow God. However, all of us in this room have lived long enough to know that life doesn't always work out perfectly, nicely and neatly, right? And so what we're going to see in the book of Job is what happens uh, when life doesn't go the way that we think it should. Like, what is happening to me? And Job is going to ask that question, okay? The author is unknown. We don't know who actually physically wrote the book, but that's okay, because this ultimately is Scripture inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, there's also no historical setting in the book, which again is okay. Many scholars believe that Job would have been alive around the time of Abraham. We can't be sure about that, uh, but that's where many people go. believe that Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. Okay, so with that piece of background in place, let's look for a few minutes here at the structure of the book of Job. 
So as you can see on your screen there, uh, there are four main parts to the book of Job. So we have the prologue in chapters 1 and 2. We have the biggest section, chapters 3 through 37, which is the dialogues with Job and his friends. Uh, Then chapter 38 to 41, God shows up in the narrative and answers Job. And then chapter 42, the epilogue, the final part of the story. So I want to go through each of these sections briefly with you guys this morning here, because there are some fantastic things that we can learn from the book of Job. Okay, section one, the prologue. This is where the drama begins and unfolds. So chapters one and two, we get a glimpse into the heavenly throne room of God. Okay? This is where God is seated on his throne. And the image that's given to us is that God is there in his throne. And he is surrounded on his right and on his left by just myriad numbers of angels, living beings, all of this. And it's interesting in the Bible Whenever human beings are granted a vision of God's throne room, you see this here, you see it in Zechariah, you see it in 1 Kings, you see it in the book of Revelation, perhaps most famously, God is always depicted as on his throne, surrounded on his right and his left uh, by angels. It's really interesting. And in, the, in biblical study, we call this, and I won't get way off into this here, but we call this the divine council. Uh, This is the way that God is depicted. God is the one who is ruling and in charge. And he has his servants, the angels, there at his beck and call. Now, interesting in the book of Job, and something that maybe we wouldn't expect, it's not just the good angels who are there. But there's also this being called the accuser. You and I know him better as the devil or Satan or the enemy, the evil one, right? He's there as well. And what he does is exactly what his name means. His name means the accuser, or the one who slanders. So he comes before God, and what he does is he issues a challenge. Now, first of all, where my mind goes is I think, think of the audacity of that, right? The devil, a created being, is in the very throne room of God, And he walks up to God's throne, and he just starts mouthing off, in a sense. He issues this challenge to God, right? He says, does Job worship God for nothing? In other words, God, the only reason Job worships you, the only reason he fears you, is because you've blessed him. That's the only reason, okay? And we see in the book of Job that God had given Job ten children. It's a lot of kids. And back in this day, uh, the more kids you had, the more blessed you were seen to be by God. Also, Job had thousands and thousands of animals, livestock. Okay, that was back in this day, that was wealth, that was possessions, right? That'd be like, Job's got a Hummer, an Escalade, right, and and a Harley, I don't know, something expensive with wheels, right? That's kind of what that would be, you know, in a massive retirement account, all of that, right? That's kind of what's going on here. That's his, that's Job's possessions and his status, So the devil says, well, yeah, God, of course Job worships you. Look what you've given him. Look how good you've been to him. The implication is why else would Job worship you? Okay. So the implication is that the devil is saying, God, you're not actually worthy of worship. You're not actually really that good. Okay. The only reason Job worships you 
The only reason anyone worships you is because you bless them, not because you are actually good and worthy of worship. Right? So the devil here, he's maligning the character of God. So, my friends here this morning, this is the fundamental question that is raised in the book of Job and ultimately does get answered. Is God worthy to be worshipped and served because of who he is? Is God really that good that he is worthy of our worship whether or not life is going well? That's the question. And if you pause, if you're anything like me, Moment of honesty here. You pause and you think through that. On the surface, it's an easy question to answer. Well, of course God's good. Of course he's worthy. You know, and my life is going pretty well at the moment. But what about when things don't go well? And I really have to look at my heart. Is God really worthy of my worship? Do I really believe that? Right? That's the question raised in this book. So God allows the enemy to afflict Job up to a certain point, and within a matter of seeming moments, Job loses all of his livestock. So all of his wealth, all of his status, all of his possessions. He loses all of that. He loses all of his servants who would have served him and lived either in or near his home and probably been like family to him. And then, worst of all, uh, and this is the part that still takes my breath away when I read the book of Job, he loses all ten of his children. Now, this is Father's Day. Uh, I am, this is my first Father's Day, actually. Uh, my daughter's ten and a half months old. She's in the nursery right now, probably wanting food. Um, <laughs> I can't, this is such a cliche thing to say, but it's so true. I get this now that I'm a dad. I cannot imagine what it would be like to lose a child. And there's some of you in this room probably that have. I don't know all of you yet very well. I look forward to getting to know you more. But I would imagine there are people in this room who have gone through the pain of losing a child. Something I can't imagine. Job loses all ten of his kids in one day. And yet, Job's response that we read, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? Amazing. Now, if the book had ended there, Job would be the hero of the Bible. Well, no, Jesus is the hero, but you know what I mean. Job would be like sort of a sub-hero of the Bible, um, but that's not where the book ends. We're going to see Job uh, as the story goes on. He, his faith doesn't quite stay at that same level. But, as we read, Job demonstrates faith in the midst of loss that is unspeakable. How could anybody go through this like what he did and still respond in this way, right? And the short answer is that Job trusts the goodness of God. He trusts in the sovereignty and in the goodness and in the love of God, even though he doesn't understand why he's suffering, okay? And that is a really, really important point from the book of Job, one of the main points in this book. It's easy to say, it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. But Job trusts that God is still good and God still has his hand upon him, even when he's lost everything and life has fallen apart. Okay. And I love in the book of Job, here Job's response is that Job 
is truly lamenting and grieving. We read that Job shaved his head, right, tore his clothes. Those were ancient signs of mourning and grieving. Okay, Job didn't do what I do when I'm having a day and come into church and paste the smile on my face. Like, how's it going, brother? Good. How about you? You know, that's what I do. If you're anything like me, you've probably done that a time or two. Uh, that's not what Job does here. Job fully acknowledges his grief. He fully acknowledges how horrible these circumstances are. And yet even in the midst of that, he expresses his trust in God. And that's an important thing for us to remember, that our Father loves us. Our Father understands us. And he wants us to come to him in honesty and grieving. When, when you're going through something horrible, talk to the Lord about it. Right? He's not expecting us to pretend like everything's okay. And that's amazing to me. So, how did Job trust in God? How can you and I trust in God? Well, we'll come back to this later, but really quickly. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul told us that God proved, demonstrated concretely his love for you and me in that while we were sinners, we were rebelling against him, God sent his son to die for us. So in the midst of life's worst circumstances, how can I still know that God is good? The cross, right? We'll come back to that. But I want to move on now to section 2, chapters 3 through 37. Uh, this is the largest section of the book. I'm not going to read through this. Um, it's composed of this series of dialogues between Job and his friends. Okay, and I put friends in air quotes because it gets pretty bad pretty quickly. Now, uh, the form of this is dense, thick, ancient Hebrew poetry. So if you read through this, there's a lot of metaphor, a lot of imagery that can kind of make you scratch your head. But what's going on here is that Job and his friends start off talking, then debating, and it just kind of goes downhill from there. And they're exploring the nature of suffering, the nature of life, trying to figure out what in the world has happened to Job. Why is he going through this? And ultimately, they're exploring the very nature of God himself in these chapters. So chapters 3 through 37. Now, it will probably come as no surprise to you, but neither Job nor his friends are able to penetrate the mystery of God's providence and wisdom. By the end of the book, they have not figured out why Job is going through all of this. Okay? Now, for Job, it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. And even in chapter 1, verse 1, the first verse of the book, we are told that Job was a man who was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. Okay? So we know from the beginning of this book, Job didn't do anything to directly deserve the calamity that befell him. Now, Job was a sinner like all of us. He was not you know, perfectly righteous, of course. But it's not like Job had done some horrible thing that then incited God to punish him, okay? That's not what happened. And so Job, throughout these chapters of poetry, Job is asserting his innocence, saying, I don't deserve this. I've not done anything to invite the hand of God to come and crush me like this, okay? And he's, his argument is simple. He says, I'm innocent, which was true. God is just, which is true. Therefore, what's happening to me is not God punishing me, which was true. However, 
as we'll see in the book, Job could not figure out then why this would be happening. He could not understand what was going on. Now, Job's friends, friends in air quotes again, uh, it doesn't make sense to them either. They also cannot figure out why this is happening. So they say this. Here's their argument. God is just, which is true. God operates this universe on a strict principle of justice and retribution. Therefore, Job, you have to be guilty of sin or else this wouldn't be happening to you. There's no other explanation, Job. One of the many problems with that point of view, with Job's friends, is that their view has more in common with karma than with divine grace. And we know as Christians from Scripture, karma isn't a thing. It doesn't exist. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's right. And praise God, we don't always get what we deserve. Amen. The interesting thing here with Job and his three friends, and this is something I want to camp on for just a second, is that for them, in their thinking, in their understanding, as they are trying to penetrate the depths of divine wisdom, they have no room in their thinking for mystery. I'm innocent. God's just. He's not punishing me. What's going on? God, I demand you show up and you sit on the court here and I'm going to cross-examine you and you're going to tell me what's going on. That's where Job goes, right? The friends. Well, God is just and he operates the universe justly, so Job, what other conclusion could there be? Clearly, you're not a righteous man. You're an evil, wicked person, right? They have no room in their thinking for mystery, for anything beyond that, right? Maybe there are other things happening behind the scenes here. And we know there are. <clears throat> okay. So as an example of Job's wonderful friends here who have comforted him well, uh, Job, remember, he's lost all ten of his kids, right? And all these other things. And one of his friends, Eliphaz, says, Consider, Job, remember, who that was innocent ever perished. In other words, Job, you're not innocent, right? Or where were the upright cut off? In other words, Job, you're not upright right? <laughs> Great comfort from a friend after you've lost your whole family and everything you own, right? But again, neither Job nor his friends can think of any other reason that the suffering would be happening, right? You must have done something to deserve this, Job. No, I haven't. So God must be doing something wrong, right? That's all they can think of, right? There's one friend in chapter 32 who shows up, Elihu. He has a little bit more room in his thinking for mystery. He does a little bit better, but he still still misses it pretty badly. And so one thing we can learn from this whole big section of poetry here, and we all know this. This isn't a surprise to you guys. There are deep and great mysteries in life. When we think of who God is, right? Triune, eternal, all-knowing, the creator and sustainer of every single thing in creation. And then we think of who we are. We are created beings made from the dust of the ground, so to speak, like Adam. We are finite. We are limited. We really can't understand much of anything that God is doing unless he reveals it to us. That's why Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those that he's revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever, 
But unless God reveals himself and his reasons to us, we're just not going to understand it. And this applies as well to suffering. There are so many people in the world who challenge the idea of God's goodness or even deny God's existence because of evil and suffering in the world. Right? The problem, well, one of the many problems with that statement is that if I'm going to say that, I am putting myself on an equal plane with God. Right? I'm saying, God, I know as much as you do, which is clearly not the case. Uh, <laughs> I think we would all agree with that. Um, God, I know as much as you, and I am judging you, you're doing wrong. Right? No. That's, that's a pretty, pretty bad thing to say. It doesn't work like that. We know that, right? The only way that you and I could judge God and what he's doing is if we knew as much as him, and we don't. And this is what Job's friends and Job himself didn't understand, okay? So that's that huge, big section. Let's go to chapter 38 here. God shows up in the narrative. Okay. <clears throat> Section three is really interesting uh, because God begins to answer Job. He starts to give Job now answers to his questions, reasons for what's happening. But it's not in the way that we would think. Okay. Um, all through section two, Job was demanding that God show up and explain himself. Right? God, I want you to come. You tell me what's going on because this isn't right. He began to accuse God of injustice. Job cursed the very day of his birth and says he wishes that he had just been born as a stillborn child and never seen the light of day. He demands God show up. So what God does is God shows up in the form of a really big storm cloud, lightning and thunder, all of that. And that's meant to call our thought back to Exodus 20 when God showed up on the mountain in a smoking, fiery furnace and gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. Okay? God's presence here comes in this form of this huge storm cloud. And God begins to answer Job. But the answer is interesting. Job wants to know why. I want to know why. Right? When I read the book of Job, God, I get it, but why did you do all this in the first place? God's answer, rather is to take Job on sort of a virtual tour of creation. Right? <clears throat> Pardon me. He shows Job the lightning, <clears throat> snow, clouds, ostriches, horses, all this stuff. And what God is doing is God is showing Job both his power and his wisdom. <clears throat> now, in biblical days, people looked around at creation, and they saw not only God's power, but also God's wisdom. Okay? And so when you and I, when we look at creation, for example, and I look around, and I tend to think, wow, God, you are so powerful. You made all of this. Uh, quick story. Five years ago, I was on a vacation in Los Angeles. I have friends there. That's the only reason I would go to L.A. for vacation. Um, <laughs> amen. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I've always kind of been fascinated by uh, astronomy and space and all of that, and science. So I drove all the way across L.A. County, which suffering, you know. Um, and I, I did that so that I could go to the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles, uh, which is that massive telescope and all that, <clears throat> and spend the evening looking at the stars and the planets. And among the things I got to do, I had the opportunity to look through this huge telescope and see this cluster of stars in our galaxy that they said is about 33,000 light years away, which I'm not very good at math. That's a long ways away. 
One light year is almost six trillion miles. So this was 33,000 of those. It's a long way away. <clears throat> and I look at that, and I am just like, wow, God, you are powerful. You are huge. The ancients believed that as well, but they also saw in creation God's wisdom. They looked at the orderliness of creation. Wow, God, every morning the sun comes up, I wake up, right? I go out to my field, I plant seeds, then you send clouds, they water the seeds, and then you take the clouds away and the sun comes out again, causes things to grow, and then my family and I have food. And then at night the sun sets, we go to sleep, and we do it all over again. They saw God's wisdom in the order of creation. So, uh, if you guys could put the next slide up there, God's response. I believe that's the next one. Thank you. So, here's how God answers Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding. Right? And what God is doing here is God is pointing out to Job that he is human. He's limited and finite. And as a human, Job's perspective was dwarfed by God's perspective. In other words, Job is not in a, quest, in a position to question God and to accuse God of injustice. And what we see in God's response here <clears throat> is that God invites Job to trust his character and his wisdom in time of suffering. He doesn't tell Job the reason for it, but he invites Job to trust him. And for you and me, it's the same thing. Rarely, if ever, do we understand all the reasons for our suffering, for our difficulty. Right? But what God does is he invites us to trust in his goodness and in his wisdom, even when things don't make sense. Right? So then, like Horatio Spafford wrote in that hymn, we can say, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say what? Yes. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Okay. Well, as we start to land the plane here, section four, the epilogue really quickly. Chapter 42, Job responds in humility and in repentance. He recognizes God's power and wisdom, his sovereignty, his sufficiency, and that God is worthy of our trust and worship, even when Job and we don't understand what God is doing. And then, The book ends with a short little note that God gives Job this gracious gift of restoring to him his livestock and all of that. And Job's wife has 10 more kids. So I'll let you decide if that's a blessing or not. Um, I don't want to make a comment there. Um, But anyway, uh, ancient times, lots of kids was a, yeah, cool. So that's how the book ends. And then the book's just done. And then you go into Psalms, right? There's no answer to the question of why. Why, God, what is going on? Now, Job didn't have Job chapters 1 and 2 to read. So he didn't understand what had happened up in the heavenlies before all of this went down. You and I do. But even knowing that information, there's still this glaring question. God, why, would, why all this in the first place? Right? Job wanted to know the reason why. That's the whole point of all those dialogues with his friends. But the reality is, you guys know this as well as I do, our perspective is limited and finite. And as God said to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, uh, God said to him, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so what Job had to learn, what we have to learn, is that our God is eternal, he is all-knowing, and we just don't have the ability to understand all the reasons for suffering. And here's the thing, even if God did explain to you and to me, if God came to us and appeared to us physically, right, and explained the reasons that he has allowed these things in our lives, we wouldn't be able to understand it. So what would we end up doing? We'd probably end up arguing. Yeah, but God, why don't you do it this way instead? This would make more sense, right? We would end up arguing with God, okay? And I really think uh, that that's partly why in Philippians 4, 7, uh, that verse, which is so encouraging to so many people, and Paul says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice there that Paul says the peace of God surpasses our understanding. We don't have this peace from God because we understand what he's doing, right? His peace transcends our understanding. We just don't have the capacity to understand why. So, <clears throat> quick story here. We're almost done, I promise. Um, I spent the last three years with my wife uh, and our daughter recently in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay? Um, and what I was doing there is I was teaching Bible and theology at a Christian school. And so, uh, I would teach this class and we would go through some of these issues of the goodness of God and there's evil and suffering in the world, all of that, right? Um, most of the students who were seniors had kind of checked out and didn't really care, which if you have seniors or you've taught seniors, you can relate to that, um, right? But there were a few, though, who really wanted to engage, and usually those were the kids who, for whatever reason, just weren't Christians, which was interesting. And so the arguments that we would have in class, uh, the debates, basically would go something like this. And this is a very common thing, by the way, that you'll encounter out in the world, Okay? And it goes like this. There's suffering in the world, and you Christians say God is all-powerful and all-good. Well, if God was all-powerful, he wouldn't allow the suffering in the first place. So he must not be all-powerful. Or, he's powerful, but he's not really good. Because if he was good, he would put a stop to it. Or, he doesn't exist. Right? Gotcha. As if no one's ever thought of that before. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the many ridiculous things about that argument, and there are many things, um, but the one that I always like to look at that's, that's the most silly about this argument is that that argument assumes that you and I know everything God knows, and we see everything God sees, and that you and I then are in a position to judge him. And it says that if I can't, if I, Scott, in my vast wisdom of 39 years of life, Right. If I, that was a joke, by the way. Um, if I can't figure out the reason God would allow suffering, then there must not be one. If I can't see it, there's not a reason. Because the unspoken assumption is that I, of course, know everything. Right? Which I don't. So. <laughs> okay. so when we try to explain suffering and figure out the reasons and come up with all the little explanations, we either end up diminishing and simplifying God, like Job's friends, 
or we accuse God based on limited evidence like Job. So we have to remember, the book of Job is not here to tell us why God permits suffering. The book of Job is here to teach us how we can trust in God and follow him faithfully in spite of it and in the midst of it. That's what the book of Job is doing. Okay? So, as we close, and I promise we're going to close. <laughs> I promise. This time. Okay. I just want to end here looking at Jesus. Okay. How do we see Jesus? How do we see the gospel foreshadowed in the book of Job? Well, there are a few things. Um, <clears throat> none of them are perfect. So I want to preface this by saying these are not perfect uh, foreshadows of the gospel. But <clears throat> sort of the overall just picture of what's happening with Job, a righteous man suffers immense tragedy and um, suffers immense evil, and he doesn't deserve it. That's kind of the surface level. That's pretty obvious, right? Who's the really righteous one? Jesus. The answer is always Jesus if you've been to Sunday school. Okay. Jesus, the truly righteous one who didn't deserve it, suffered immensely, right? That's kind of the, the surface level thing. But we see Jesus there, in a sense. But more importantly, though, we see Job, a human being, afflicted with great tragedy and suffering. And yet Job wasn't perfect, so he's not a perfect picture of Jesus. But even in the midst of everything, Job never, ever lost his faith in God. He trusted in God through it all, right? And in that, we see a beautiful picture, I think, of our Lord, who in the Garden of Gethsemane sweat great drops of blood, right? He said, Father, if it be possible, let this suffering pass for me. But, what did Jesus say? Not my will, but yours be done, right? Father, I trust you. And as Paul says, Jesus became obedient, even to the point of death on the cross, right? Jesus did not back away from the suffering and Job says in Job chapter 9, I wish there was someone to go between us, an arbiter or a mediator, more literally, that he might lay his hand on God and his hand on me and advocate for me. Right? Job wants a mediator. The book of Hebrews tells you and me that Jesus ever lives to intercede, to advocate for us at the right hand of God the Father. Right? This is what Job wanted. This is what we have. We have the mediator. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And as Paul says, there's only one mediator between God and humanity. That's the man Christ Jesus. There's no other. No other person, no other religious guru, no other worldview or philosophy. It's Jesus alone. He is the mediator. Right? And as we close, finally... Sorry, I have to say that. It's my first time preaching here. Um, <clears throat> while suffering is difficult, none of us like it, right? I was very moved by, by Rachel's, Rachel's story and testimony there. Um, and seeing this family, it's amazing. And others in the room who have gone through things that are terrible. And we've all, we've all suffered in certain ways, right? Um, none of us like it, but it's a part of life in this world. But what God has done for us uh, is God has not given us an answer, the why. But he's done something that's even better, I think. Um, there's a Christian philosopher named James K.A. Smith. And he said, God hasn't given us an answer 
to why there's evil in the world, but he's given us a response. And what was his response? To become human, to take evil upon himself, to let it crush him, and ultimately to die, and then to rise from death, so that you and I can know, amen, that our suffering has meaning. Our suffering has meaning, and it's not wasted, right? So, all of this, we can say with Horatio Spafford, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Amen? Amen. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, um, God, for just, God, your goodness for everything. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that you do not just watch our suffering passively. God, you know what it means to suffer. Lord, you came and you suffered for us. You suffer alongside us. So Father, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here that you would give us abiding faith in you, to trust you, God, when things don't make sense, as we look to Jesus. In his name, amen.